0: Christmas season is over and man, it flew by fast. The traditions, the family, and of course, the celebration of Christ. The one who, as the angel said, brings good tidings of great joy for all people. All people. It's kind of a funny message given that roughly two-thirds of the world doesn't know christ if the good news of christ really is good news for all what about the majority of the world that as the story goes has nothing to look forward to except eternal punishment is this the victory of god or could perhaps we have misunderstood and underestimated just what God is really doing in the world. Could it just maybe be possible that all people will ultimately be saved? Another episode of Spiritually Incorrect. On this episode, we have Will Hell One Day Be Empty? Darth Vader's Salvation? And John's Lackluster COVID Recovery. I'm your host, Seth Hart. Join with me is Jonathan Lionhart.
1: Christian Hell, Christian Hell, Christian Hell rocks. Hear the fires gleaming, hear the dead scream, torment and moaning, and fire and a muzz they're in hell forever just because
0: i asked you to look up some of dr perry's info so we could introduce him well and this is what you did instead i was wondering why i was taking so long
1: <laughs> you guys might be able to tell that it's christmas we're recording this over christmas break and i it, it, it is the season to be jolly I, and i've been trying to confusedly mix thinking about hell with christmas and it's it's come up with some very perverse results I this apologize. is
0: why god gives you covid
1: Yes, I have COVID as well. My whole family has COVID. I'm in a dark
0: place right now, guys. Yeah, you miss Christmas, and we're all ticked about that.
1: Yeah, well, because we're brothers-in-law, so we're supposed to spend Christmas together. We're we're not just on the air for your enjoyment. We have to actually spend time together at home. But we we were spared that this season because I had COVID.
0: John, did you get anything good for Christmas? (sighs) I didn't have to see you.
1: Um, I got a Oculus Meta Quest 3 which I used to work out. I mean, this doesn't just happen overnight, Seth. This this is chiseled through hours of VR boxing.
0: I, I love that you still hold out some hope for the VR revolution, which just doesn't- The VR do
1: revolution that. is coming. It's it's already come. It's already here. It's now and not yet. It's Zuckerberg has already overcome. The victory has already been purchased. It's just the unfolding- of the narrative of salvatory VR that is taking time.
0: That made about as much sense as any justification for believing that the VR revolution has any hope.
1: The VR revolution, okay, it's not going to be VR that succeeds. It's going to be MR, Mr. Mixed Reality, when VR successfully incorporates the world around you so that you're just wearing glasses, you can still see the world around you, but with like extra VR screens there. And stuff like that. That's what's going to succeed. And that's hopefully only 5 to 15 years away.
0: That just sounds like dystopia.
1: Anyways, back to hell and universalism, which I suppose some people think a VR future is hell. So there's that. There, see, we connected the conversations.
0: You didn't even ask me what I got for Christmas. I don't care, Seth.
1: What, what What did you get for Christmas, Seth? By the way, where's my birthday present?
0: You were supposed to get it when you came, but somebody was like, oh, I can't come until January.
1: All right, whatever. Tell me what you got for Christmas.
0: Nothing of importance. You'll see when you come, John. You'll see when you come. That'll be an incentive. No one
1: cares. No one cares about our personal Christmases. Let's just talk about hell, Seth. Go ahead. Christian hell, Christian hell, (laughs) Christian hell.
0: (laughs) (laughs) introduce, (laughs) Introduce Robin Perry.
1: All right, well... You are lucky, audience, today, because we've gone and gotten the leading scholar, arguably, in the world on the subject we're about to talk to today. We have Dr. Robin Perry, who is, as I said, arguably the leading scholar, especially the leading evangelical scholar in the world on the topic of Christian universalism. John,
0: is he a leading scholar?
1: You could say that, yes. You could say that he's a leading scholar. Uh, Dr. Perry, a leading scholar on the subject, has published over a dozen books and himself works at the publishing house with and Stock and has been the editor for a number of my books, which is how I was able to manipulate and pressure him into coming on the show. Uh, because he doesn't tend to do these interviews anymore. He's already said pretty much everything he has to say on universalism. But we got him because I milked our relationship. So,
0: (laughs) no, we actually both know Robin Perry. Personally, we both have met him. He's an absolutely solid scholar. Great uh, individual. He's going to round out our wonderful Rethinking Hell series. Boy, has this been fun. Yeah, we're not even going to do a Rethinking Heaven series. It's kind of like, ah, everyone knows what that's going to be like.
1: Everyone knows. Go read
0: The Great Divorce. We're all going to (laughs) be naked running up mountains. That's that's true story. Go read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis.
1: That's always I, I, I'm always for for promoting Lewis on the show. That's a good note to end on before transitioning. Or do you need something else like a, a more subtle transition to the conversation? Thank you so much for being with us today, Doctor Perry. What is universalism? If if we're just assuming our audience has no prior exposure, no academic whatever, what is universalism?
2: Well, in the way that. People could understand it most simply, it's the view that God will rescue everyone and, ever, and and the whole creation. So God brings all of creation to the goal for which he to the purpose for which he created it. And for creatures that need saving, such as ourselves, that means that God saves us. It's universal because I believe that God saves all of us. So it's as simple as that really. I wish I could be more clever about it.
1: <laughs> God saves everyone. Alright
2: uh yeah basically (laughs) (laughs) it's as simple as that not just the queen no
0: so how did you become a universalist what's the story behind that
2: yeah yeah and in the in the book i uh the evangelical universalist i tell the story but basically i i wasn't brought up christian but when i became a christian i became evangelical and i just took it as read that Obviously, universalism isn't true. I mean, it wasn't even something I contemplated as a possibility. And this was fine. I mean, I was an eternal conscious tormentor (laughs) until I went to study as an undergraduate. And one of the people I got to know as an undergraduate was a New Testament scholar called John Wenham. He wrote the uh, Cambridge textbook on learning New Testament Greek. I got to know him, and he was a lovely bloke. I used to go and see him in my lunchtimes and have lunch, and he was evangelical, very conservative, but he was an, an annihilationist, and I was drawn to that. I was quite persuaded by him. He smuggled me in a copy of Edward Fudge's book before anyone would publish it. And i became I became persuaded then back in the in the mid eighties that eternal torment wasn't right but but that still people would go to hell, but they would be annihilated and that was that seemed to me much more made sense more sense with what I thought God was like but then subsequently, while reading a book on philosophy of free will, I became persuaded that God could bring it about that all people freely choose to embrace salvation if God wants to do that, and he could do it without violating our freedom. And that then created a problem for me, because I was also convinced that God wouldn't do this. So on the one hand, and I'd always said, well, I say always, in my Calvinist phase, I thought God wanted to save some people and not others. But after that, I thought, no, God wants to save everybody and sent Jesus to die for everybody. The problem is we condemn ourselves by, and God can't force us, God won't force us to accept him uh, or to accept the gospel. And so God cannot guarantee that in the end, everyone will be saved. And that's, that's what I'd said. And it was, it's not because God doesn't want to save us because God wants to preserve our freedom. And this is because God loves us. Once I became persuaded that God actually could save everyone without violating anybody's freedom, I then had a problem, because I remained convinced that scripture was clear otherwise, and so I had a real dilemma. God could save everyone. I couldn't think of any good reasons why God wouldn't, given who God had revealed himself to be, and yet God wouldn't. So I lived with that tension for some while, but it got it got to a point where I found it increasingly difficult to worship. I mean, I did worship because, and some people would say, I'm just a sucker for sucking up to God and all that. (laughs) But I felt that God is God and God knows stuff I don't know, because God's God. And so I worship God anyway, but it was difficult. Not long after that, I had a student, I used to teach philosophy to 16 to 19-year-olds, and I had a student who was doing a pro- wanted to do a project on suffering, and well, hell and free will. And so I thought, well, you can read some sort of contemporary philosophers. So I, she, I, I got her to read various folk, and one of the people I got her to read was Thomas Talbot, who is a universalist philosopher. And I contacted him, and, and he sent very kindly, a copy of his book, The The Irresistible Love of God, or something like that. It's something along those lines. He'd kill me if he heard me say that. (laughs) Anyway, I I read this book, and I wasn't persuaded, but I was surprised that there was a lot more going for it in terms of traditional Orthodox Christian uh, theology, and in terms of the Bible, than I had previously considered possible. So this opened up for me a possibility I hadn't previously considered as even imaginable, that maybe it's actually a Christian view that God can save everyone, well, will save everyone. So I then started on a two-year exploration of this issue, at the end of which I became persuaded that actually this is a view that's consistent with scripture. And the more I read on early church history, I thought, and and also consistent with a lot of what early Christians were saying. Yeah, so after a couple of years, I thought, no, that's what I think. And that was early 2000s, and I that's what I've thought ever since, really. I haven't, I haven't really matured very much since then.
0: Okay, now time for a tough one. What is hell for a universalist? It seems like that's just something completely different from what most people have in mind.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's a good and legitimate question. And part of what I tried to do in the book was hold that question back. I mean, I know this sounds a bit bonkers, but I came to the position of thinking that we're so used to thinking of hell in a particular kind of way, and we're so used to approaching particular texts and reading them in certain kinds of ways, that everything else is then reconfigured around that. So we, we begin with the passage on hell. I mean just to illustrate this I had a chat with a friend some years ago now I gave him a whole bunch of reasons why I was a universalist and he said yeah yeah I I understand all that and I haven't I can't think of any responses to that but what about this verse in Luke 16 I can't remember the number of verse you know about the chasm in Hades between Abraham and Abraham's bosom and you know the rich man in Hades and no matter what I said all that mattered was this verse. And he he wasn't persuaded that this verse didn't mean what he thought it meant. And so forget the rest of the Bible, right? This It begins and ends with this. And I thought, well, okay, maybe what we need to do is approach it from a different perspective. Let's set the bigger biblical picture about what God's doing in creation and, and so on and tell that story and then see what the hell texts look like when you frame them within that, so so instead of beginning with hell and then making everything else fit round it, I thought, what happens if you begin the other way round? Tell the bigger story and then come and ask, but what about the hell texts? Now you could say I'm just loading the dice the other way, but it does make the hell texts look different when you do that. If you haven't already determined what they mean before you look at anything else, so if you don't mind, I will defer that question to slightly later and uh, not much later i will answer it in this long spiel i'm about to do but it'll be fairly short so i would say i began in the book by looking at colossians 1 because there you have the hymn of christ he's the image of the invisible god the firstborn all creation you know the passage Uh, because there you have a hymn that puts christ at the center and it runs from creation through to new creation and in effect encompasses the whole story of scripture right from creation through to new creation, with the cross at the centre, making peace through his blood shed on the cross, and it's got the story of creation. It doesn't talk about fall, but clearly there is a fall because there's a need for reconciliation. It talks about salvation and it talks about the consummation. That beca- becomes like the paradigm is a way of telling the biblical story is a story of God creating the cosmos for a purpose, and uh, and how through Christ and through Christ work in incarnation and the cross, God is bringing creation to that goal. Now. It happens that, at least at face value, Colossians 1 looks like, and I think when you look at it more closely, it also still looks like a text that says something like universalism, because you have all things were created, whether things in heaven or earth, visible or invisible, thrones. So, in other words, everything that is created was created through him. And then, later on, and in deliberate parallel to that, all things he and he reconciled all things to him to the father through the cross through his blood shed on the cross so the same all things that were created which is emphatically everything are the things that are reconciled through the cross through making peace now that is an is basically my paradigm for, for what that's what i think the whole of scripture says when you read it as a whole so I begin then by going back. I think I do. I can't remember. In somewhere else, in, in another thing I wrote, I did anyway. Let's look at creation and think about how God, in creation, God makes everything through Christ in the Spirit. And all those things are created with a telos. There's a reason. There's a de- there's a thing that God made them for. And what they're made for ultimately is for God. All things are from him and through him and to him. They are for him, as Colossians like. They are made by Christ and for Christ. So everything that has been created is from him, through him, for him, to him.
1: Do you mind if I read this Colossians verse out loud? Yeah. Just for our audience's sake. Colossians 1. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I think the emphasis you'd be placing there would be to reconcile to himself all things
2: so the bulk of my book and that is is telling is sort of framing things in terms of this story uh, that everything has been created by God and for God, but because of sin, everything gets damaged and corrupted and and for, for created things to reach the destiny for which God created them, this requires God to act in Christ to bring them to that destiny, and this is why. Christ is absolutely essential to the universalism that I teach. Well, I don't actually teach it, but it's what I think. So I'm not an evangelist for universalism. At least I don't think of myself as that. So Christ is central. God reconciles all things through Christ, and by the Holy Spirit. Now God is working, drawing creation to into union with Christ. And but God is by the Spirit. God is still working to work out this reconciliation. So in the New Testament, you have this now and not yet thing that new testament scholars often talk about where in christ the end has already come and so god has already brought about new creation and, and the new age in the resurrection of christ the resurrection of jesus is the new creation it is the future the resurrection body it is the future of creation it is the future of humanity in the body of jesus who is the representative of humanity so jesus is as our representative, he dies, he shares in our brokenness, and then rises. And in his rising, that's the destiny of creation. And it's already achieved, so we don't have to hope that God will reconcile all things. God has already done this. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, as 2 Corinthians 5 says. However, as Paul says, nevertheless, you know, we have the message of reconciliation. Be reconciled to God, because the Holy Spirit is drawing people to share in the salvation that is already a reality in Christ and the church are a community of people that the holy spirit has drawn and united to Christ and we are starting to experience that new creation but the fullness is still not here yet so we still await this so the fullness of the experience of new creation is still future so yes you can look around and go but clearly not everybody is reconciled to god well yes in Christ they are and in Christ Dead and resurrected, but that's not an experiential reality yet. But it will be, and that will that confidence then. And this is the reason that I'm not a hopeful universalist. I mean, I'm hopeful, but I don't mean I don't go around going, "Well, I'd like to think it. I hope it. I'm fairly sure. I feel pretty sure." You know, as much as I'm sure about anything, that God will reckon that God's reconciling all things, and the reason is because God has already declared the future in the resurrection of Christ. So it's not me being arrogant and presumptuous and presuming to know what God wants. God has declared what God wants in the resurrection, and that is God's destiny for creation. And as Romans 8 says, the whole of creation is longing for this liberation. And what it's longing for, so this is more than just humans, this is the whole of the created order, is longing for resurrection, really. That's the sort of paradigm that's working through Romans 8, death and resurrection, and the groaning that we currently experience in ourselves as we long to see that, to participate in resurrection, and the groaning that is the same groaning that creation is currently experiencing as it's longing for resurrection. And the Spirit joins with us in this groaning and so on, but the Spirit is working to birth (laughs) in us, this resurrection and we don't know exactly what that would be like but we know that we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is yeah that's the basis of my universalism so which is and then i kind of think well what about hell after i thought all of that stuff yeah
0: so what about hell
2: <laughs> oh, okay is that is that what i mean i can yeah what about Maybe hell? you
0: can say within that story where is hell slotted in so to speak yeah
2: um so judgment is is an important part of this story, and you see it throughout the biblical story. Um, so you see it a lot in God's relationship with Israel. God is in a covenant relationship with Israel, and within that covenant, if they obey, there are blessings, if they disobey, there are covenant curses. And they incur divine judgment, which can be very severe. I mean, it can be very severe, but I would say they are falling within grace. they're not falling from it from grace. And in fact in a way the judgment can be construed as an act of grace. I mean and this is the way the prophets some I mean the prophets construe it in different registers, right? And we need to maintain those different kind of registers. But they will talk about it as a means as as a, th- a means through which God disciplines his people or corrects them or a prophetic warnings. Or in terms of this is just the consequence, you follow that, you follow, so God in in scripture is life, you follow a path that leads away from life, then where is it going to go? I mean, it doesn't go anywhere apart from away from life, it goes towards death. There is nowhere for it to go, and you pursue a path in terms in Christian terms away from um Christ likeness and away from conformity to you know to from eternal life what, Where else is that? I mean there is only a corruption and a distortion of your humanity because your humanity is created to be in union with God. That's what it is i mean to to be a human being. It's not something any of us fully are yet, it's something we're becoming. Christ is the only real human, fully human. Human is my aspiration, it's what I'm becoming, Uh, and it's what the Holy Spirit is enabling me to become in Christ. But any way I head away from that is heading towards corruption and death and sin, which is the very thing that Christ comes to save us from, is sin and its devastating effect. So there is judgment, but in scripture it is I argue, always penultimate. It's not the end of the story for Israel. So Adam and Eve are cast out like Israel is sent into exile, and exile is not the end of the story, because there's a return from exile. But that doesn't make the judgment trivial. This is what people say to me sometimes, but you make judgment trivial. But it's not trivial. I mean Jeremiah, when he's warning of exile, is absolutely devastated by it and is very conscious and preaches very clearly that this judgment is terrible and ought not ought to you ought to do everything you can to avoid it (laughs) but it's not the end of the story and so he still has hope beyond exile in other words he sees that the story doesn't end on a cross it ends with an empty tomb and with an ascension and so i think of judgment in these kinds of terms. In fact, the way, I mean, theologically, the way I tend to think, so none of the biblical hell texts actually say that hell is the, I mean, some of them are ambiguous, but none of them unambiguously say hell is the final fate of anyone. Some of them can be read like that, but they don't have to be. And I argue that when you situate them within the bigger framework, it doesn't make sense to read them like that. However, the other thing to, to mention about them is this the, the rhetoric because you will often get and you get this a lot in the prophets, the prophets say you'll be destroyed, there'll be nothing there'll be no trace of you left, you will be cast off forever, and all this kind of stuff, you'll there'll be nothing left of you the end. And after that then they speak of restoration. <laughs> and you think, what? I mean what are you talking about? And I think the problem is that we sometimes overinterpret some of the language because we read everything so woodenly. And the prophets were speaking about serious consequences that needed to be taken seriously. And they were working to persuade their audience to take them seriously. And they were using language about fire that doesn't burn up. I mean, that's language Jeremiah uses. I mean, but an Isaiah talks about this fire that you know, but it's, it, it's not still burning literally. So, so we, we have a danger of over-interpreting some phrases and language, and then insisting everything has to fit around this wooden reading of it. Whereas I think, actually, if you understand this language within the bigger biblical framework, and in the way that, that the Bible authors demonstrably, in some cases demonstrably, use this language, you know, that they talk about judgment with nothing left, and then they talk about restoration. So I think you can read the the New Testament texts in the same way. Now, obviously, that's something we do as readers. The text itself doesn't interpret itself. We are interpreting the text. and But that's how biblical theology works. You know, the text, we decide how to fit various texts together and their messages and which ones to read in the light of which one. Whatever we think about how to read held text, it's something we are doing If it's not me, it's the conservative Bible preacher is doing exactly the same thing, just doing it differently. So we need to take responsibility for our homeneutics, for the way we read the Bible and acknowledge that it's us who are doing a biblical theology. Because the biblical theology that we create, which tries to encapsulate the whole Bible, and this might be ironic, isn't the theology of any of the writers of the Bible. It's not Paul's theology, because Paul wasn't trying to do theology that took John into account and Revelation and all this. I'm trying to do that. Paul isn't. It's not John's theology. It's not Matthew's theology. It's not anybody. It's not Isaiah's theology. It's none of their theology. It's the contemporary church's theology. It's my theology, as I try and take seriously everything they said. As Karl Barth said, our task as theologians is not to say what the apostles and prophets said, or not to repeat what the apostles and prophets said, is to say what we have to say in light of what the apostles and prophets said. And that's what I'm trying to do, is I'm trying to take seriously what God, I think, was revealing through what they said and think, well, how do we hold this together? And how do we hold it together with what scripture reveals about God and what God's purposes are and what God is like? And this is a constructive theological point. This is not, I can give you a Bible verse has all of this in, but I think this is a way that makes sense of all of the Bible verses, is this. The way I tend to think about hell is that hell is, that God is, the divine presence is, is like a fire. And how we experience the divine presence very much depends on what our own condition is. If we have been purified and sanctified in the Holy Spirit and conformed to Christ, then that divine presence is life and light and is heaven, experiences heaven. If we are still twisted and wrapped up in our sins and so on, the exact same divine presence is experienced as something that is torturous, something that you can't live with, something that that is like a fire. And that same divine presence, if we're on a journey towards God, can become experienced like a purgatorial fire. So So the way I tend to think about hell, and like I say, this is me doing constructive theology. And it's not just me. Other people say this. I didn't make it up. And some of the church fathers said this as well. It's the divine presence experienced by sinners. And that's not ex- that's not a pleasant experience. But it is not the end of your story, because it's not over till the fat lady sings. And the fat lady sing- doesn't sing until God is all in all, which is First Corinthians 15, which was incidentally the favourite Bible, the favorite proof text for universalism in the church fathers, because they said, well, look, what does it mean for God to be all in a creature? And for God to be all in that creature, that creature must be totally filled with God, totally submitted to God. So any creature that is in rebellion against God, God is not all in that creature, because there's still evil, which is evil is the sort of will that's turned against God. But when God is all in all, this is when God is everything in every creature in creation. And that can only be the case when nobody has their will turned against God. And until that point happens, evil is still present in the universe. Even if God is knocking it on the head with a hammer to balance the scales of justice, as on the Augustinian view, evil is still present. And the universalist view is that's not the end of the story. The story only ends when evil is gone.
1: Well, thank you for that big picture view. And you, you within that big picture, you've shown quite helpfully where health fits in. It's a temporary thing that perhaps occurs in the afterlife. And it doesn't even necessarily have to be God saying, hey, I'm going to be mean to you. It's just the divine fire which warms some and scorches others based on their own content of character encountering it. That's a helpful way to frame it. And now I'm going to ask you a question that basically rejects everything you just said. Uh, <laughs> because you gave a very you gave a very nuanced sort of let's look at the big picture, not specific texts. And and maybe with that framework in mind, let's look at a specific text, which is Matthew 25. Jesus says that the damned will be sent to eternal fire. How might a universalist make sense of eternal in verses like that, especially because that word there in Greek for eternal is the same word used also there for eternal heaven. And so how can that word mean eternal for heaven and that be truly lasting forever, but only temporary for hell?
2: A fair question, and exactly the question that Augustine asks in The City of God, and exactly the question that that I see quite often in traditional literature. So, well, I do think, you know, you you can read this text in the way that an Augustinian would. I don't have an entirely settled view on this parable, but not because of this stuff. I'm not Entirely sure about the scenario that's that's being uh, pictured here. It's about the gathering of the nations. So the the, the sheep and the goats are nations rather than individuals. And thinking with a sort of Jewish apocalyptic hat on, um, the sort of picture is one in which Israel isn't one of the nations. It in, you've got Israel and the nations, and, and here the nations, so presumably not Israel, are giving an account. And, and, and I don't inquire, I'm not entirely sure how to make, make sense of exactly everything that goes on with that. But that aside, in relation to the question you're asking, I argued that, you, that the parable doesn't address the question about the duration of the punishment or the life explicitly. The eternal punishment, kolarsin ionion. The ionion, I- ionios, the word for translated as eternal. Well, it can mean different things, but it means age long, enduring for an age. Now, the length of the kind of age is in question. Are They're not timeless. They're definitely not timeless. They exist in temporal duration. Um, and they don't last forever. So there, are, there are, the Bible talks about ages and uses this language to describe it. So this, in terms of the conceptuality of apocalyptic Judaism of the time, this refers to a particular age, namely the age to come. And so I said what Jesus is talking about, the punishment of the age to come and the life of the age to come. And he says, one group will experience the punishment that takes place in and is appropriate to the age to come, and the other group will experience the life that takes place in and is appropriate to the age to come. So they're totally parallel. How long does that punishment or life last? Well, that's not the question the parable asks. If you want an answer to that question, you're going to have to go somewhere else to get it. You can't just get it from that Greek phrase because there's plenty, plenty of biblical examples where this terminology is used for things that don't last forever. So we're going to have to look somewhere else. And we can't settle the issue just by quoting a verse like that. We're going to have to look somewhere else. And so people say, yeah, but if the punishment doesn't last forever, then, then maybe the life doesn't. So how do we know we've got eternal life? Well, we know we've got eternal life because scripture says we'll be raised with an imperishable body because it'll be like Christ's. And we're sharing, we're part of, we're participating in the very life of God himself when we participate. Participate in resurrection life. So that is eternal in the sort of more robust sense. Death is a nothing. A death is a negation. It's not a sort of eternal divine principle that, that you're participating in. So it doesn't have the same standing. It, it can't claim equality with life in, in that respect. But you're going outside of the text to settle that issue. And, that, and my point simply is, I don't think that text is trying to address that particular in fact Jesus is more interested in how people behave towards people who are hungry and etc and interestingly most of the people who quote this verse are in relation to the issue of hell completely bypass the question Jesus really wants to get them to think about and take seriously the challenging one which is how you treat certain groups of people And unarguably, a lot of Christians might fall foul of that and end up in the wrong place on that parable. But nobody seems to preach that. So one
0: question that you'll commonly hear with universalism is, "Well, if everyone just makes it to heaven, what is the point of going out and sharing the good news?" That seems to be such Uh a big emphasis in evangelicalism. But if universalism's true, Hmm. it kind of negates it,
2: doesn't it? Yeah, you're right. People do say that, and it's interesting that historically. Universalists were involved in evangelism. I think of some of the Moravians, um, Zinzendorf, in the 18th century. These were great inspiration. These were behind a whole missionary movement, the Moravian missionary movement. And uh, Peter Burler was one of the great Moravian missionaries to the Americas. And Count von Zinzendorf was the guy behind it. Both of them Universalists, which did somewhat annoy the Wesleys. <laughs> <laughs> also uh in the 18th century i think of one of the a baptist revivalist preacher called Hannon winchester a really nice bloke who was a universalist but a preacher and he has a sermon he preaches a universalist on the importance of the evangelist and he was a great admirer of wesley he was a minister in philadelphia but he also had he also went across and had a church in london so he was a transatlantic universalist minister and he was just up the road from wesley who he had great admiration for as an event john wesley as an as an evangelist and and there and there are various universalists who are you know you could point to as as very active past and present evangelists um so what role does evangelism have well because it is through union with christ that we start to participate By the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit joins us to Jesus and starts transforming our lives. Obviously if that's how we start sharing in the salvation that Christ has achieved then obviously it is kind of important to tell people about it and to invite them to share in it. I mean that's the whole point right so the whole point is not to leave people as they are but to invite them to the well I mean really I mean I wouldn't put it like this but to them but Invite them to become the people that God created them to be because that is to be united to God through Christ and to be transformed to become Christ like. That's what we were made for. And so, why wouldn't you want that? Why would you not want someone to experience that or to know that? I do find it slightly ironic that sometimes it's Calvinists who say this to me because they have exactly an analogous issue. I mean, if you're a Calvinist, you believe that God will save the elect because God has chosen to and God will bring about God's purposes. So you could say, what's the point in preaching? Because God will save the elect anyway. But that doesn't stop Calvinists going out and preaching the gospel. They do. And they do it with great passion. And why do they do it? Because they say this is the means that God has elected to bring about this purpose, the purposes of his election. It is through the preaching of the gospel that the elect come to faith. Well, okay. <laughs> What's good for the goose or whatever? is a... So that's what I say. It's through the preaching of the gospel that, that faith is awakened in people and they, you know, are united to Christ and participate in this journey of transformation. And, and it kind of presupposes a pretty rubbish view of Jesus, doesn't it? It's like, wow, flip. I mean, if I can go and do all the fun stuff like living a wretched, sinful life, why on earth would I, what's the point in following Jesus? You know, as if there's no point in following Jesus at all, unless I, it's a get out of hell card. That's the only reason. And I sort of think, shoot. <laughs> if I was Jesus, I'd be a little bit upset about that.
1: I mean, as if those people weren't in love with Christ, wanting to spend time with him because spending time with him is awesome. Yeah, exactly. Not merely as a means to some other thing, because there is no means to some other thing. He's the thing.
2: He so is the go thing for him now. Exactly. He's, yeah, the, he's thing. the thing. He's the thing. He's and uh, so why would you not want that? Unless you think Jesus is rubbish, right? So he just reminded me of it. I was in a, a debate at the. I nearly said something bad. I was in a debate at the theological college on this was, and there was um, a training a pre- trainee priest who was furious with me because his, it meant that his granny wouldn't be in hell forever. Now, and I understand that at one level, obviously, his granny must have done something terrible, that he would feel like that. So there's a pastoral issue there. But part of me thought, well, you know, what's the response to that? I mean, I almost, I felt like saying, well, when you become a Christian, you'll think differently about (laughs) it. Because, uh, because I thought that's, while I understand that, and there are issues that God, you need to work through here, can't you see that that attitude is just messed up? That you wouldn't even want your granny to be transformed and repentant and reconciled. You don't even want reconciliation. God's clearly got some stuff to do in you. I don't think that's a problem with my view. I think that's just a pastoral issue with where somebody's at.
0: So you brought up a couple of historical figures, Count von Zinzendorf, that's, that's new to me, but I'm curious, because most people would still say, well, historically, the church has always held to a certain position on hell, that hell is eternal, and this just isn't it. Is that true, or is the story a bit more complicated than that?
2: It has been the majority view since about the 5th century. Prior to that, well, prior to that, it's probably wasn't. I mean, I. the reason I say probably is because really we don't, we don't know. <laughs> Most of the Christians that are alive are dead and didn't leave any trace of what they thought. So our evidence is various texts from church leaders and so on. But from the stuff we have, we know that there were in the early church a lot of people who were universalists. There were people who were annihilationists and there were some people who were eternal tormentors. And after Augustine, that view becomes, certainly in the West, but also in the East, becomes very, very much more dominant. But prior to that, we know from the the teachings of various church fathers and so on that, that there were quite a few prominent people, amongst whom, obviously, Origen and Gregory of Nyssa, they're the most famous. Well, no, what well, I would say, other people as well, like Athanasius, I think Alaria Romelli makes a very good case that Athanasius was a universalist, as were a whole bunch of other notable people, and these folk were hardly heretical. <laughs> I mean, some of these folk are involved in the forging of the creeds, you know, that we that they kind of define orthodoxy. So there's that. And we know from some passing comments, a couple of passing comments, like one from Augustine and one from someone I've gone blank, Augustine refers to the the very many people, tender-hearted believers who believe in universalism, which he thinks they're wrong and they need to be corrected. But he talks about them as if they, and he's not talking about leaders, he's talking about ordinary folk. So you you get these comments to, that give the impression that universalism was quite widespread on the ground. And, it's, and of course, we can't draw up anything precise from that other than we can say universalism was certainly fairly widespread, because these people that we do know were spread across the Christian world. They were uh, reputable, mostly, not all of them. And it depends with whom. <laughs> <laughs> origin was always in and out and controversial in certain quarters and, and increasingly so he so what happens and part of the reason universalism fell out of favor is that at the fifth ecumenical council in the 6th century there is appended to the proceedings of the council an appendix which whether it's whether it counts as part of the proceedings of the council is debated i mean i think a lot of scholars now say well technically it's not part of the proceedings of the council it was added but it might well have been added. It probably was added fairly soon afterwards. And this is a series of anathemas or curses on people who teach various things. And these various things include apocatastasis, the restoration of all things. But it's apocatastasis construed in a particular way, connected to all sorts of other beliefs, panentheist, pantheistic, And this it's based on an earlier list from the Emperor Justinian at a local council. He tried to get these, these anathemas through, and they were approved by this local council. They were never technically approved by the church, but they were added on, and it wasn't universalism per se that was condemned, but a particular version of it. So, so for example, Gregory of Nyssa's universalism wasn't condemned, but they thought Origins was. In fact, What had happened was some of Origen's followers in the centuries after Origen had got more and more extreme, and particularly uh, some of the monks in some Palestinian monasteries. The teaching had got more out there, and some of the things they were saying were things that Origen didn't say at all. But because they kind of looked up to him as a sort of fount of their Origenian tradition, everything they thought kind of gets projected back onto him. And so people talk about them as if they're anathemas against origin and unarguably Justinian in thought that they were <laughs> i'm not sure he thought origin thought this stuff but a lot of it origin didn't think and you know so it just got murky because after that lots of people thought oh well this view has been condemned by the church it can't be held and so even those universalists who are universalists subsequently are, are much more circumspect about it and um much more careful about how they phrase it. (laughs) So you have to, so you can think, was Maximus the Confessor a universalist? Well, arguably, but not clearly. And, you know, and and Julian of Norwich, well, yes, arguably, but not, you know, never in a way to be seen to be undermining the church. And there was some ambiguity as to. So it wasn't until the dratted Protestants come along the 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 question opens up again because Protestants like to think that they didn't care less about tradition. At least some of them did. So then you can ask those questions again. And so right from the time of Luther, he's having to deal with people who are thinking, oh, well, maybe the Bible, maybe we can, think, you know, and particularly from the 17th and then 18th centuries. And then the 19th centuries, it, more and more people are starting to, because the Protestant thing opens up the possibility of asking the question again. And and simultaneously, and this is a historical thing again, in the Catholic and Orthodox worlds, there was a recovery of Origin. Well, you, I mean, you'll know about the seventeenth-century recovery of Origin from your work on Cambridge Platonists, and um, there were certain people who were linked to the Cambridge Platonists who were involved with this this sort of recovery of Origin, and some of them, with Universalist, well, overtly Universalist. So, there was this, so within Protestant, within Catholicism and orthodoxy, there's this growing recovery of some of the universalists in the early centuries. And particularly in the 20th century, uh, Sergius Bulgakov, Russian orthodox guy, sort of re- goes universalist because he's reading some of these fathers. And um, von Balthasar, in the Catholic tradition, opens up these kinds of questions again for, with a hopeful spin because, you know, he does not think he can do anything too rad. And then a lot of origin scholars in patristics started looking at the text differently, and there's been a whole recovery of origin's tradition, uh, reputation rather, among patristic scholars that he'd been dismissed as a heretic, and so and now now people are like, oh, actually no, he's a lot, he's amazing, he's really interesting, he's not, you know, and so there's been a whole recovery, and that then has revived the hopeful universalist strands within orthodoxy and Catholicism as a recovery of an ancient form of Christianity. So,
0: that was only about half of our interview with Dr. Perry. If you're enjoying this, go check out our Patreon page, and for $5, you can get the full conversation, which is about an hour and a half long. Plus, you get loads of extra content from not just this episode, but from all of our episodes. Take five minutes, go check it out right now. We make it worth it, I promise universalism it's really having a major resurgence right now because of guys like robin perry david bentley hart why do you think that is yeah
1: so universalism is it feels like this big thing that's happening and it feels like robin perry kind of got the ball rolling a little while ago and then other people were like oh someone's talking about us now we can finally jump on board and reveal that we've secretly been universalist the whole time and so other people like David Bentley Hart are getting on board. Secret all of this secret society
0: of universalism. Yes, this
1: secret, these reptilian people meeting in. Yeah, anyways, <laughs>
0: reptilian. I love that you brought in that David Icke reptilian stuff. We should do yeah. an episode on that.
1: Yeah. Next, uh, next, next
0: Christmas. Yeah, it's a good Christmas episode. Yeah. <laughs> Is Santa a reptile?
1: Yeah, but I mean, it is been one of those topics that people are really afraid to talk about in Christian circles, because you'll get fired or you'll lose your, you know, your congregation will be like heretic.
0: Yeah, but it's, it's it's more than just, oh, it's having a resurgence, maybe because of a few brave voices coming out and saying, hey, I believe this for X, Y, or Z reason. I mean, it's having a resurgence right now in a very sort of aggressive way. So I think the reason I think you're right. The reason people got fired is because the, the resurgence that happened, say, uh, 100, 200 years ago was mostly done by very liberal Protestants, like the Unitarian Universalists, right? The UU Church, which is yeah, uber liberal. And so conservatives are like, oh, we're not that we're not that.
1: But actual people that we would consider Orthodox Christians who hold pretty traditional theological views about the atonement, about resurrection, about all of these types of things are now starting to come out as universalists. And that's what's making this resurgence more interesting.
0: It is. I'm curious, though, if there's if it's more than just, oh, this has always been there and people have been brave enough to come out. I'm curious if there's something about the current climate, like a sort of reaction to fundamentalism and hellfire mm. and brimstone preachers that has been like, you know what? We're <laughs> going to be the exact opposite. And that's sort of attractive to people who may have grown up with a very guilt oriented faith.
1: Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. A very narrow sort of conservative type of thing. And then overreacting by just opening it up to everyone. A few hundred years ago, when universalism is first kind of being bandied about on a more popular level, I imagine that's kind of, you know, that's really bound up with this growing globalization movement. And it's kind of overwhelming. All of this stuff happening at once, and I can see there being sort of an overreactionary. No, we can't do that. We have to hold on to what we we have, and we can't just let it all go at once. But now we've had a bit more time to sit with it and process it, and not get too freaked out. I don't know what I'm saying here.
0: I don't know either. I don't know. I don't know. You seem like you've warmed up to it quite a bit.
1: Oh, I, I I'm I, I'm not saying I I hold this position, but I I do think that it's it's interesting and it's worth
0: talking about. You always say that with every issue oh it's interesting and worth it's quite about. interesting Sam. <laughs> yes 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 yeah. yes yes indeed yeah it is i find i do find it interesting so to speak about how popular it really has gotten i've got a lot of friends who've become recent converts to that who are catholic who are protestant and who are orthodox The
1: Spiritually Incorrect podcast would like to take this time to officially declare that we are not holding a stance on universalism for or against.
0: Jonathan would like to. Jonathan would like to to specify. We'd
1: like to specify that we are not actively promoting any of the three positions that we've had on the show.
0: (laughs) Speaking of the three positions, something super interesting was his talking about the divine presence model. You catch that?
1: Because we had a previous episode, if you haven't seen it, go back and watch the episode of Zachary Maness, where he talks about divine presence as the basis for a traditional hell. But you're right, Robin Perry's bringing it in for universalism. Why don't you explain what that
0: is? The divine presence model is the idea that hell, or in this sense, he actually used the term purgatory, because in some sense, universalists think purgatory and hell are the same thing. The divine presence model says that that is caused, this hell or purgatorial state is caused by the presence of God. The same fire, which is purifying and cleansing for the repentant, is burning to the unrepentant. And so God's presence is heaven for some and hell for other people. Now, Zachary Manis goes on to say that it is in this divine presence that people, in a sense, are so utterly turned off by God, the fullness of God. They've rejected God in sort of the finite sense that we can see and participate and know God now. And so when they meet God more fully, it's going to be so utterly horrifying to them that they're going to completely reject God. Whereas Robin Perry goes on to say, are you falling asleep?
1: No, I'm just meditating upon your rich,
0: rich words, Seth. Am I going too long? No, I'm listening. Okay. Robin Perry basically says, no, it's purgatorial. It purges you that, yes, it's burning for a while, but eventually you'll submit to the divine love, which there's two ways of putting that, which is God's love going after you until finally you... Make the right decision and repent. Or you could also frame that as sort of burning you into submission, so to speak, (laughs) depending on how you want to frame the model. Yeah.
1: Well, what's interesting is both that framing and the framing that Chris Date put for annihilationism are ways of seeing these views that are still quite terrifying and full of wrath and punishment and pain which is interesting because they often get caricatured as being the sissy view for people who are afraid of hellfire. But in the annihilationist model that Chris Date proposes, like annihilation is worse than eternal fire and torment, in his opinion. And in Robin Perry's model, there's still this active burning off, which might not be literal fire per se, but it's still a very painful purgation process that is judgment. It is experienced as a form of torture by the individual, perhaps more psychological than physical torture, but torture nonetheless.
0: Yeah, but it's so so interesting to me that I literally, in prepping for this episode, five minutes before, I checked Facebook and one of my friends who's a recent convert to universalism posts saying, I now no longer have any fear of God or of hell, <laughs> and you should not either. And so, yeah. yeah, it's still there, but at the same time, it's also you know whether you're they're both it's a finite burning versus a sort of infinite burning
1: they they reserve the right to feel morally superior about god's love when it's convenient and to go back to judgment and wrath when it makes them feel like they're not just giving in to the easy position uh and i suppose we all make those types of convenient two steps when it's
0: convenient for us right the same way we use scripture in different ways right because one of the things that I'll give them credit for, I give universalists a lot of credit for, is that they take seriously certain verses that do kind of seem a little bit awkward.
1: Yeah, I mean, Colossians 1, Philippians 2, those Every on, on on a surface level reading of those texts, those are very strong in a universalist direction. And if you didn't have all of these other texts about hell, you could read those few verses and be very convinced.
0: Yeah, something you could bring up is Matthew 25 makes the parallel between the eternality of heaven and the eternality of hell that got brought up in the discussion with him. But also, if you want to talk about parallels, what about the parallel that in Adam's all sin, so therefore in Christ all will be made alive that Paul makes, you know, in Romans and repeatedly?
1: Yeah. And I think part of the strength of Perry's case is he was saying, you know, this isn't just me picking different texts. This is me trying to sit with what's the big picture story? The narrative that's being drawn here from beginning to end, Adam to Adam, and the reclaiming of all of creation. And that's part of what's so cool about Perry's picture is he's trying Perry's to see picture. Perry's picture.
0: That sounds like a kid's show.
1: Parroting Perry. Is that he's trying to see how does the big story make sense? And what is the big story of scripture that's being told. Because that's the way in which we frame the text. And if we just focus on a few individual texts here and there, that could go either way. But he's trying to make the argument that the big picture story of Scripture and of what God's doing in the world makes the most sense if this is God reclaiming all things to himself. And it's, it's first Adam to second Adam reclaiming all things. But
0: I want proof text. I don't want big picture. I want proof text. I want verse and chapter. <laughs> chapter and verse, John. Yeah. On that note, it is interesting that you know we can provide these sorts of texts, we can look at the whole overarching picture, but then it just comes down to, okay, God is reclaiming all of creation. Does that include every single individual? Or when God says that, is he just saying, I'm reclaiming humanity generally, and it's up to yeah. you whether or not you get to be human? Because even he said, we're not fully human.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a valid theological position to take. But of course, Perry would say, ah but now you are applying a theological model to the scriptural text we all have and well and i think that's the point is we all have to and he would say so why not this one especially because this one is more morally philosophically persuasive and he would say makes just as much sense of the big picture and of the individual text
0: sure he he would say that right Right. it's which i mean obviously we have to apply a model that's this is what systematic theology does is yeah. easy way verses that seem to say some things and other verses seem to say another thing up against each other check context blah 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 and come up with an overall picture of saying this is what scripture teaches
1: blah 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 the whole hermeneutical process uh it summarized by seth so Ward, often blah blah blah
0: it is very <laughs> often a blah 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 you know that's true
1: you know what i don't need texts seth i don't need proof texts you might be blessed because you have seen proof texts, but blessed are those who have not seen and still believe, Seth.
0: So I got a question for you. I
1: love that you just moved past that. You're not even going to acknowledge it. You're like, no, he's just being an idiot and making a joke. I don't need to I, I,
0: I've I've grown sort of like calloused towards most of these comments. About t- 10 or 20 seconds in, I completely tune out.
1: I've hardened your heart. I am God. You will bow before me, Pharaoh. Sorry. Say what you were going to say.
0: Yeah. So one of the texts I lost my train of thought. Give me a sec.
1: It's almost like someone screamed at you for a few seconds and almost like you.
0: that. So one of the texts I was thinking about is in Hebrews where it is appointed for all men to die once and then face judgment. It seems to be a sort of one judgment sort of thing, right? Yeah. And this seems to be that judgment has already been done. There is no final judgment. The judgment has been cast and it is the redemption of all people. And final judgment is just sort of, You know, I don't even know what it is, honestly. But this is just revealing, I guess, suppose my own ignorance. What is final judgment then? Because it doesn't seem anything is final about it then.
1: Yeah, it's.
0: Uh,
1: (laughs) (laughs) I guess what would you say Perry would say to that is that final judgment isn't an instant any more than conversion is just an instant. You know, we, we always want it to make this instant but it's, it's a process. And I guess he would just elongate that process. I guess there is a sense in which all of us think that that process isn't just an instant, but takes time. Even if it's, it's not chronological time, there is a process that has to undergo that we have to undergo post physical death to be made ready for heaven. Even if you're saved on this earth in this life, there's still a lot of stuff that you have to go through. To be purified. I mean, hopefully, this as I am now and you as you are now, Steph, isn't what we're going to be for eternity in heaven. There, there's something we have to go through, and that would be a process it's and... called
0: sanctification. Yeah,
1: yeah, but it's a process that doesn't end here on Earth. It also occurs in the afterlife, and that's a that process. There has to be something there that has happens. to be purgatory. Well. <sighs> I don't know if there needs to be thousands of years of purgatory, but there has to be a couple seconds of purgation in order that you as you are now. In the
0: twinkling of an eye, John. Yeah. In the twinkling of an eye.
1: That might be a chronological instant, but it's still a conceptual process.
0: So what does this have to do with final judgment, though?
1: Well, you could argue (laughs) that
0: you're really stretching here we should i'm
1: trying to defend perry here i'm trying to give a back and forth for this to make this an interesting conversation yeah that's a question we forgot to ask why don't we switch you're i'm not doing a great job defending perry you defend perry
0: okay i mean the final judgment could be that you will face a purgative state until you repent in the same way it's kind of like a judge at your trial in a moment saying you will go to jail until you say you're sorry or something like that. You know what?
1: I've had COVID all week and my family's dying. I'm tired. Just cut all of this. (laughs) Just just cut all of
0: this. No, this is fun.
1: No, I think you're right. Uh, As Chris Date argued, the punishment, Chris Date argued this, is that there is a finality to judgment in the annihilationist model. You know, once you're dead, you're dead. And I imagine the same thing can be argued for the universalist. You have been judged. And so now your judgment is being carried out as you're being processed. And, you know, this is your final prison sentence. But at the end of the prison sentence, you still get out.
0: I want to, before we end this, ask you a question. We are now finishing a three-part series on Hell, John. Now, most of these views...
1: You're going to ask me which one I think is right.
0: No, I'm not. I'm going to say what's your overall takeaway that we're trying to rethink some of the ideas around Hell and maybe just present other models. We've had three different models here. What's one that perhaps has been the most novel, interesting, shocking? What one? I'm not saying what do you believe. I'm saying is there one that just was like, whoa?
1: I think they've all been like, whoa. They've all been really interesting and shocking. And I don't know if there's one that I would just single out as the most shocking. But I would say that what has shocked me is how deeply all three speakers were in the text they were all using very scriptural arguments. They weren't making emotional appeals to try to persuade you that hellfire can't be eternal. They were making textual arguments. And this is something that Zachary Manis, our speaker who defended basically a unique but nonetheless traditional view of eternal hell as eternal torment. He even admitted that he is very impressed by the way the Annihilationists and Universalists are in the text. And I, I think that was interesting to me. I had thought that they would be more sophisticated and persuasive theologically and philosophically. I wasn't expecting them to come at us scripturally as strong as they
0: did. You know, it is funny you say this, that the one thing that all three positions agreed on is that all three positions should be in the conversation.
1: Yeah. And that was, you know, Zachary Manis didn't think that these people were all idiots or liberals who've, you know, should be thrown out. Like, this is a conversation we need to be having. These are people who are taking scripture seriously. Let's sit down together and reason.
0: So sorry, David Bentley Hart fans. Everyone comes to the table.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. I love it. We we think it's going one way. But uh, yeah, Hart, Hart does seem to make it seem like Anyone who disagrees with him on this is definitely just an idiot.
0: There's a lot of vitriol going around in these debates from all sides. What a happy, wonderful way to end our Christmas season, John.
1: Christian hell, Christian hell, Christian hell rocks. Hear the fires gleaming, hear the dead scream. Torment and moaning and fire in a month.
0: Thanks again for listening to the Spiritually Incorrect Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please consider subscribing and leaving us a five star review. Those little bits really, really do help. And just to repeat, this is only half of our discussion with Robin Perry. We have over twice the content, not just for this episode, but for our whole series on rethinking hell. Go to Spiritually Incorrect Podcast right now, click on our Patreon link. And then for the price of a Starbucks coffee, you can hear over twice the content, plus plenty of other great features. Go check it out right now at spirituallyincorrectpodcast.com and see what you're missing out on. Special thanks to Jordan Birch, whose song Starry Night provides the intro and outro for this podcast. You can hear more of his music on YouTube, or Spotify.